Hi, I'm Homozo KG Mwegeti, and I believe in music's ability to connect, to heal, to remind, and to bring joy. And each week on my Saturday and Sunday show seasons right here on SAFM, I endeavor to do just that. So join the movement of seasons every Saturday and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. It's addictive. You might invite a friend. Seasons only on SAFM 104 to 107 nationwide with me, KG Mwegeti. Patricia Mandula on the Morning Blaze. It's 16 minutes after 8. It's time for world domination. Uh, let's welcome Atambide Masola, who's a co-author. Uh, and we are talking about the great Noni Jabavu, uh, who was born in 1919 and in the then Cape Province of South Africa. She was a pioneering South African black writer. Thank you very much for joining us, Atambile. Morning, Patricia. Thanks for having me. Atambile, you've just written or co-written a book um, that speaks of the life and times of this great first black South African woman to publish uh, memoirs. Um, tell us about your uh, your piece. So the book is a collection of Noni Jabavu's columns that she wrote in the Daily Dispatch in 1977. And what Makosa and I do is to situate that book in relation to her life and her other work. So Makosa Zana writes the introduction, which is a historical overview of not only Nodi's life, but also situating her in the tradition of black women writers. And then my afterward is um, a reflection on what Noni Jababu has meant, not only for my own um, literary journey, but also more broadly what it means to be a black woman writing in the public sphere. Share with us, I mean, what does it mean to be a black woman in this day and age, uh, writing in public, as opposed to in the times of uh, Noni Jabav? Well, it's quite interesting because obviously things have really moved and shifted and people like me are standing on the shoulders of people like Noni Jabav or Mampenjo Mtinzo, who were journalists um, in the 70s, also at the Daily Dispatch, um, and a few other names that uh, Kosi mentions. It was also a, quite a big magazine culture where there were black women writing for magazines, editing magazines, way before, in fact, white women were, were doing the same. And so there's this interesting... Um, connection and disconnection because there is such a literary tradition um, and the kind of really grows in the 1980s with um, a new um, a new generation of memoir writers um, and then in the 90s it grows some more so I'm in a far better position the interesting thing however is that many of the women who did write in the 60s 70s and the 80s were not part of my curriculum, and that's the disconnection. So people like me discover the names and the works of these women only much, much later, and it's when we're also trying to situate ourselves historically with other literary ancestors, so to speak. Hmm. For those who have not really come across Noni Jabavu's uh, articles and, and book, um, help us uh, with an understanding of them, because like you say, they are not really in our textbooks. We are not uh, having the privilege of uh, uh, studying such uh, great um, writers in South Africa, whether male or female, uh, but they have not made it into the mainstream. 
So Noni Zaba was mostly famous for the two books that she published in 1960 and 1963 while she lived abroad. The first one being Drawn in Color and the second one, The Ochre People. Um, and in 1961, she was then the editor of a literary magazine. So she has a really interesting kind of um, range of writing that she does. And then a lot of people didn't know that, or at least I also didn't know when I started doing research on her, that she had written these columns in the Daily Dispatch. And it was important for us to collect them in order to kind of extend her literary um, a literary perspective on her so that she's not just a memoir writer, she's not just an editor, but she was also um, an, an essay writer in a sense. And she was actually far more diverse than that. She was also uh, a broadcaster at the BBC. So the book itself um, actually maps out, begins with um, a reflection of hers of when she returned to South Africa. And the reason she was coming back in 1977 after being away for so long was... Um, I mean, she had been tra- um, traveling back to South Africa intermittently um, in the 50s and 60s, which is what her, her, her two memoirs are about. But in 1977, she was um, a, a researcher at Rhodes University, and she was going to write her father's biography, Professor DDT Jababu's biography. And so she comes back to South Africa and is shocked when she learns that she's, in fact, a foreigner in the land of her birth because South Africa, apartheid South Africa, is no longer part of the Commonwealth which would have meant that she, as a British citizen, she could come and go um, in South Africa. And so it begins with this really strange um, encounter with her at the borders um, where she writes about how she can't understand why she's not allowed to come home. And so because South Africa um, has uh, Transkei and Suskei, she's then moving between South Africa, the two homelands, um, and has to kind of use her past very carefully as she's trying to navigate all these borders, even while she was born here. And so the book is about kind of being in this country again for such a long time and observing and people watching the, uh, the, the columns. But they're also about um, music. They're also about her friendships. They're also about her life abroad and trying to make connections for her audience down um, in South Africa. They're also about her love life because people are so fascinated by this black woman who is not married, who doesn't tick all the boxes of respectability. She's in her 50s by then, but speaks quite frankly about her life abroad and about the experiences that she has and the lover that she has in in Kenya because she's also living in other parts of the world. A very interesting, uh, very colourful life indeed. Um, And I think uh, uh, these are the sort of women that are supposed to inspire us now in whatever spheres we might be in, but definitely those within the writing spaces. When we come back, we speak about the influence that her father and uh, the network of families that she she lived amongst influenced her thinking um, to be who she is uh, or known to be, Noni Jabavu. Let's take a quick break. The Jet Set Breakfast. Music, culture, lively and critical discussions on SAFM. We're still in conversation with uh, co-author Atabile Masola. Um, she, alongside Umakosa Zanakaba, uh, penciled down beautiful, beautiful uh, uh, book that speaks of the life and times and greatness of Noni Jabavu, who was a pioneering South African writer. Now, um, Atabile, before the break, I was uh, saying, please talk, tell us more about 
the influence that her father, who was a politician and a writer himself and an academic at the then Fort Hare College, had on Noni's way of living, thinking, writing, uh, alongside the network of families who, you know, pioneered African uh, modernity, um, you know, and, and the influence that that had on her as an individual. Um, sure, I'll start with the network of families, especially because she writes about that um, quite a lot. So Noni's father, as you mentioned, is the professor, BDT Jababu, and her mother was um, Florence Kandi Makiwane, who also came from a prominent family um, who had sisters like Cecilia Makiwane, Daisy Makiwane, who were pioneers as well. And she's related to um, the Bokwes as well, um, John um, Oh, why have I forgotten Reverend Bokwe's first name? Reverend Bokwe, Frida Matthews' father. Um, and so she's part of this network of effectively pioneers who were the first doctors, who were the first um, university lecturers, who her mother was um, a prominent social worker who was involved in the Zenzela group. Her aunt, Umamkuluake, was the first journalist in um, for Imbozabansundu, which had been established by her grandfather, John Dengo Chababu. So you really get a sense of someone whose life, um, whose life is kind of punctuated by all these kind of grand narratives of the making of the South African transition from sort of 1800s into the early 1900s. And the people in her family are part of creating that culture, um, many of whom were African intellectuals, many of whom were pioneers, many of whom were in farming and business. So also an array of of experiences and influences. And I think with the influence of not only her father, but also her grandfather, as well as her mother, whom she talks about so lovingly, is the sense of the world was always in her house. So she writes about Olive Schreiner visiting her, 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 her grandfather's house and her parents' house. She writes about when Rudyard Kipling came to South Africa, he came to visit them in King Williamstown. So the world and her father, both her parents, in fact, had studied abroad. Her mother, I think, had studied music in Birmingham. Her father had studied, um, I want to say Edinburgh, but also um, in the UK. And so by the time she goes to the UK when she's 13 years old, it's not unusual insofar as who has been coming in and out of the house, what the literary influences were in her house. She writes about her father's study a lot and how that influenced her. She writes about how they had books in the kitchen, books in the study, books everywhere in the house. Um, she writes about her father's interest in collecting Izidugo, which are clan names, which was part of a project that he was working on. Um, in fact, both her memoirs, are, um, are kind of reflections on her movement, especially the first one where she visits home because her brother has passed away and she's coming back for uh, his funeral and is then sent to Uganda to go and see her sister who wasn't able to attend the funeral. And so even that sense of Uganda, it doesn't feel too far away. And she, her father has traveled to Uganda before. There's a wonderful travel log um, written by her father um, and translated by Dr. Uh, Cecil Manona and edited by Tina Stainer that came out, I think, two years ago. So her father was um, not only a writer but and a traveler, but also wrote about that experience. So by the time Noni Jawa was writing her memoir about her traveling, that's something that she's already seen her father do by the time she is, um, you know, in broadcasting, interested in music. She comes from a very musically orientated family. Um, and so that's the kind of life world that she was part of. And so even as we see her as a pioneer, 
I think it's so important. And I think Makosa and Kaba's work has helped me to see her within her kind of social milieu, her social world, her cultural world that she is brought up in. And that for her, the things that by and large she does, are, 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 and, and she could almost take for granted because they come from a very early foundation in her life. Sure, what a beautiful and interesting life. The influences are just so rich and uh, diverse. If you think of the times, 1990s, it was, it, it, was a, it, was, it was a different time from where we are right now, where the, the World Wide Web has made everything so closer and the world is uh, just one small button away from each other. But yeah, very interesting. Tell me something, Atabile. Between you and Makosa Zana, what stro- stroke the interest in Umama Unoni Jabav? So, in the introductory essay, Kosi writes about um, how she came across Noni Jabav's work in, in quite a, a beautiful way. And what she reflects on is picking up a book that gave her a sense of the world of her parents. That for the first time, picking up um, one of Noni Jabavu's memoirs gave her a sense of how her parents would have grown up. Um, her parents were teachers um, uh, in the Ndaleni area. Uh, and so she gets a real sense of a cultural world that, again, as children, we kind of take for granted about how our, ch- uh, how our parents would have grown up. Um, and then that inspires her to carry on and do the, the masters in creative writing that she then, then did on um, Noni Jababu and becoming uh, and, and starting a biography on Noni Jababu's life. And for me, what was interesting is I grew up in East London, um, not very far from Alice, Etigeni, where Noni Jababu would have grown up. And so as an Eastern Cape kid, one would think that names like this would kind of fall off my tongue. But in fact, they weren't. Um, and so it's only much later when I'm writing for the Daily Dispatch and people are talking about the fact that I'm writing for the Daily Dispatch and I'm kind of paying, trying to pay attention of who are the other black women who are writing in this space. And it was important for me to historicize that, not to feel exceptional, not to feel like I'm doing this for the first time. And so I, was, I started doing research and it was literally quite on, on Google black woman writers from 1980s or whatever. And I popped up Noni Jababu, and it was through Makosa Zanakaba's work, because for a long time, Noni Jababu didn't actually exist on the internet. People who knew her knew her work, yes. And it was kind of quite niche in the sense that people who were literary scholars or people who, were, who would have known her from the Eastern Cape growing up, perhaps, would know her. But to be able to Google her was because of somebody else's painstaking research. And so I Google her, and I found that she's written two books, both of which are out of print, and it was through kind of serendipity, really, that I even managed to find the first book of hers, Drawn in Color, that I first read while I was at a writing retreat in the monastery just outside Makanda. And it was years later when I found both her, her books in an in a antique bookshop at 44 Stanley um, that I was convinced that this is the project that I wanted to do for my PhD. One, because, um, I mean, it felt serendipitous finding both her books in one store at the same time because it had been so difficult to find her books. But on the other hand, I think it was that sense of why is it that we don't know about black women who are writers, Um, and particularly in the 1960s. By the time we roll around in the 1980s and in 1982, Noni Jababu's The Oka People published in South Africa for the first time, 
Um, the 1980s are a different kind of culture, but to situate that culture within Noni Chababu, who was writing in the 1960s, together with Abu Victoria, Swartboy, and Zora Puchane, um, who were writing in the 1930s, even as far back as the early 1900s, thanks to the Lavdale Press, um, you get a long view of the history of black women writing in this country. And so I wanted to be able to explore that more. Um, and I think it was interesting for me because of what happens in the 1980s. A lot of the writing that emerges is political with a capital letter P in a sense because of the moment. And what someone like Noni Jababu does and is often critiqued a lot for is that she doesn't write about politics with a capital letter P and kind of falls out of the grand narrative of what we want the story of South African writers to be. And so I was also interested in that. And what do we do with black women in particular who write about music, who write about fashion, who write about travel, who, but in between all of that, because they are black women, cannot escape the fact that they are black women, who write about being um, middle class or who come from an elite family and are aware of the fact that they come from elite families. Outside of the narrative of um, working class struggle, which is incredibly important, but I think sometimes we need to balance those narratives and be able to talk about the different experiences that even black people themselves are having. Now, uh, looking at um, the sort of um, material and columns that Noni wrote, uh, Umama Noni wrote, and why would they matter today? What is the content of these columns that make her and her writings so relevant in this day and age? So that's the interesting thing, right, is that Often, we, who gets to decide what is relevant and what is not relevant for today? And I think someone like Noni Jababu's um, columns are so telling of who gets to be remembered and who gets to not be remembered. And so for us, these columns are incredibly relevant for today. I mean, there's a wonderful question that she asks in one of her um, in one of her columns where she asks, you know, what are white South Africans so afraid of? And I think that question is still relevant today if we're thinking about relations, um, race relations in South Africa. Um, it, it could equally extend to what are black middle class people so afraid of if you think of how we live at the estates, the kind of privatizing of our lives. And so there are small questions that if we're really paying attention, we can really see the relevance of them. I think her ability to write about class um, unashamedly is really very relevant for today and to really understand the psyche of even black middle class people whom we often kind of want to um, dismiss um, as not being part of the, the, the fabric of how we think about South African society. So we call them black diamonds, we call them influences, we have all sorts of words that are dismissive of this small class of people um, in relation to um, the broader um, kind of middle class or lower middle class and working class people. And I think what this book does for me is to challenge that, is to say how do we put those two different experiences or multiple experiences in conversation with each other so we can have a richer understanding of who we are, not only as a country, but also who we are uh, uh, particularly as black people. So for me, that relevance is, is so important. And I think the relevance of, and so I've had so many friends who kind of went to private schools, Model C schools, um, who are finally being like, oh, I finally feel seen. I can finally see myself in this woman because of her ability to talk about things like travel, to talk about her ability of these kind of wonderful, um, soft life kind of experiences that she was able to create for herself, um, who was 
able to talk about having lovers, who was able to talk about not wanting to get married ever again, even though she'd been married already three times. Um, and so that kind of the complicated nature of this black woman in the 1970s is really still so important as a representation for black women today. Sure, most definitely. I agree with you uh, totally there, Tambil. Can can you please uh, give us um, an extract? Read for us something from the book. So I'm going to read from a column that she wrote on the 9th of February, 1977. And this is one of my favorite columns, and I won't belabor it because I think it will become quite clear. And the title of the, of the column is Smuts and I. How did you come to be sent to England so young? What did you feel about it? A house called Salta at Claremont, Cape, was where I first beheld and shook hands with the English couple who were to be my guardians in England. That house was where General and Mrs. J.C. Smuts lived. Its name was backwards for at last. Like a typical black child of those days, at 13, I was not too well primed about the negotiations that must have gone on between my parents and my prospective local parentis about the life they were planning for me, which I was to learn in years to come was to be a practical demonstration of the generations of friendship between the families. I learned then that the plan was for me to be trained as a doctor to serve my people that it misfired for a medical doctor was the one thing I didn't want to be. I didn't know what I wanted to be. After the boat trip from East London to Cape Town, we were chauffeur driven to a rambling country style house at Claremont. The master of the house, Umnimimzi, a spikely old boar wearing a white goatee and khaki shorts, introduced everyone to everyone. He told me and my little siblings to call him Wamiani and to call a very fat, smiling boo lady, Tanti Bibas, and a small, very curly-headed lady, Tanti Isi. Wanyani took my hand and led me to an elderly couple, elderly to my eyes anyway. I was dismayed to see no children around, and said, And now, Nandando, here are your Uncle Arthur and Aunt Margaret, who are taking you to England. I was surprised and thought, What now? but we've only just come. It was as if Wamiani had heard my thoughts because he said, but first, let's have tea. Then Margaret will all go and look again at our pride and joy. Jolly old man, he talked nonstop. This to me was natural. At home, I was accustomed to the master of our house doing all the talking, cracking jokes, making his captive audience happy. It was a sort of South African household scene, I knew. Tanti Bibas took me to sit on a sofa beside her and whispered as I gazed at my new Uncle Arthur and Aunt Margaret. You will like them very much. They're going to be nice to you, so don't worry, ne? And you won't be lonely. They've got children and young people, only they are out playing tennis with friends this afternoon. And she warmly pressed my hand. She was, she was like the flat booed ladies at home in our little town, Alice, friends of my mother, with whom she exchanged tea time visits and endless messages by hand of garden boys to do with cookery recipes, pot plants, and so on. They used to exchange copies of the Farmer's Weekly and a renowned sheet of the Egg Circle, women with names such as Bota, Besedenode, Tetsa, 
Our town was a slow-flowing stream of non-racial friendliness and contact between its resident, resident boers, English natives, such names as Taylor, Glass, Burl, Tremere, Jabavu, Bokwe, and so on. Tanti Bibas murmured away, and like a well-brought-up child, I kept quiet and listened, which was just as well, for I was thinking that the one called Tant Isi was a colored old lady. Again, to me, quite in order, for we had colored friends at home. Mr. and Mrs. Peace, for instance, their daughter was a great friend of mine. Later, I was to discover that my assessment of the curly-headed lady had been a childish thought indeed, nitwitted, for she was but Wormyani's pure brood wife, but children can entertain the most unpredictable ideas. When we all rose at Wormyani's bidding to follow him down his garden path, he lifted my brother onto his shoulders, clasping the little ankles with one hand, and he and Aunt Margaret led the leisurely procession pointing at specimens, the pride and joys, among the profusion of shrubs and creeping plants as they went with a walking stick and a folded parasol, talking animatedly. Uncle Arthur, my mother and sister followed, she lifting up her arms to hold both her hands and prattling away unselfconsciously, grown-ups listening with amused attention. Sandy Bieber and I brought up the rear. I adjusted my step to hers, slow and stately because of her immense size. I can't have been pri- it, it can't have been prior arrangement that Tante Beavers explained my new relations to me. Looking back, I imagine she was behaving naturally. Natives used to say that birds are like us, our people, have, hum- have humanity. They like to communicate as we do. A bird can be your father, mother, and beat you, train you, if you disobey his paternal commands. Don't we beat children, then? Spare the rod and spoil the child, and the bird can be so kind. Oh, don't talk about it. Unlike Amangyesi, they have not the warmth of the bird. So correct speaking through those closed lips and teeth, leave the black man to flounder by treating him as a mature creature with brains, stupid as we are. No, man, the bird is better. It's understandable. You know where you are with the bird. Sure. What a powerful piece. What a beautiful extract. Uh, I understand why it's one of your favorites. <laughs> totally understand. Um, yeah, and I love just the complication of social relations, right? This yes. image of a young girl and her family visiting General Smuts, whom we think of in one way, and she's describing him in his homestead. And I think it's so powerful to see those kind of domestic scenes in relation to the grand narratives of South African politics. Well, Atambile, thank you so very much uh, for joining us and sharing that article and also sharing the life of Unoni Jabavu. It's very interesting. Um, Is the book that you guys have penciled down available everywhere? Um, Definitely. It's available at all bookstores. Um, exclusive books, bargain books. Um, yeah, so people shouldn't struggle finding it. Excellent. Thank you so very much.